Hello and welcome to How I Got Here, a podcast about the success stories of interesting and accomplished people. Our guest today is Ruth Dugdall, once a probation officer originally from Suffolk. She now lives in Luxembourg. Having studied English and theatre studies at the University of Warwick, she also has a master's in social work. Ruth has five crime fiction novels under her belt and her latest book, Nowhere Girl, is set in Luxembourg. Hello Ruth and welcome to the show. Hi Marina, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming in. So my first question for you is, because I read this online, so I just want to check that we've got our facts right about you. Mm -hmm. And it says that writing was actually a hobby for you in the beginning. So you never intended for it to be a career. Yeah, I mean, I think that's because of the the fact that we're talking about the 70s, the 80s, um, when I was a child. And I was, I'm I'm from an area in England um, where I lived on a council estate. I went to the local comprehensive, which wasn't a particularly good school. Mm -hmm. You couldn't have even dreamed of being a novelist or an actor or there are certain careers that would have been just dreamland, Mm -hmm. singer or anything like that. So the idea that I could have um, made a living out of writing would not have occurred to me. I look back now and I think English was my best subject. I loved books. I kept a diary. Um, I used to love short stories. You know, the signs were all there, but nobody was going to take me aside and say, you could write a novel. Mm -hmm. That came much, much later when I was um, in my 20s, in my late 20s. So I would say, no, I I didn't dream about being a writer because that dream wasn't accessible. Was there a trigger? Was there a moment where you said, okay, I can actually really do this? You said it was in your 20s. Do you remember that moment where you said, okay, you know what, I'm going to try? Yes. um, Because I'd, I mean, when I went to university, and as you say, I studied English, there were people who did creative writing, but I didn't have the confidence to join those groups. Those people seemed quite exotic to me, that they they would think their writing was worth reading aloud and commenting on. I wasn't in that place. Um, So it was much later when I was a qualified probation officer and I did a night class in creative writing and nearly left on the first night because we were told you have to read out what you write. And um, through the course of the uh, 10 weeks, I, I, I really enjoyed it. And at the end of it, the tutor wrote to me and she'd included a short story I'd written and mm-hmm. she'd said, this, this could be a novel and actually you should think about writing a novel. And so somebody had to, it had to be made that clear to me. To give you the confidence as well. Cause, yes, yeah. I mean, even then I thought, well, I'm not going to write a novel. I wouldn't know how to. Mm-hmm. I, I work full time. But mm-hmm. my husband said, that's a great idea. Yes, you should. And he really went with it. I mean, he bought me that Christmas a, uh, a silk notebook and a fountain pen. And, and he put in it a novel by Ruth Dugdall. You know, he was, he was very much saying, you could do this, you should do it. And maybe because he thought uh, it would be an easy dream, you know, and a bit yeah. of cha-ching, uh, <laughs> money for him. But he, he definitely championed that idea. Mm. And then when I did get an idea, I found a story, um, yeah, he, he really said, do it, write the novel. And then I had my maternity year, a year off from work, mm-hmm. and that was when he really said, why don't you finish it? Mm-hmm. And so I did. And that was back in um, 2002. And is that when you wrote your first book, which is called The James Version? Yes, it is. And that I was d- published in 2005? Yes, okay. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, it was again, it was a hobby. It was a, a real case, a real murder that took place in Suffolk, Mariah Martin and the Red Barn. And I stumbled across it 
and the facts of the case didn't stack up, so I reinvestigated it. For years, I, I reread the trial notes, I, I went wow. to all the places, and it was my hobby, my obsession, mm. and then I put it into novel form in that maternity year, and halfway through the year, um, I saw a competition for an unpublished author, and the prize was a, pub, a print run, and, and I won that competition. So I, it was printed, it was 60 copies, that sold locally, local bookshops. Mm-hmm. And then I went back to work. You know, I'd, I'd written my novel. It's like a little box. dream for you, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And it was lovely. And there it was in print. And, and believe me, I, I cried when I won that competition. Mm-hmm. It meant a huge amount. But again, the idea that that would be my living was not there. Was, was not there until the next book, mm-hmm. The Woman Before Me. I want to explain a bit about your work. For those who mm. don't know, Ruth works as a pro- worked as a probation officer. Am I right that you don't do that anymore? Well, I can't do that here in Luxembourg okay. because I don't have the, the languages. Um, I do visit the prison and I have done um, bits of social work here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so I, I keep my hand in. And when I go back to England, which is soon, mm-hmm. I'll, be, I'll be going back to work as well as doing the writing. But what was the kind of day-to-day work that you were doing um, in the prisons at home in England? Okay, so a probation officer only works with guilty people. Um, Either they've pleaded guilty or they've been found guilty. Um, You either work with people in the community who are on probation orders. The idea is to try and get them to change their attitudes, to change their thinking, Mm -hmm. to understand why they committed crime. So I did this for 10 years. Uh, I did two years in a prison for children mm-hmm. who'd committed murders and rapes. So a very specialist role in a very special prison we took from all over England. Um, so most of my work, um, I was always attracted to the, the harder cases, the more serious cases. Um, I wanted to work with the murderers and the sex offenders. So that was... Um, and because I, I went into it so young... You know, I qualified when I was 21. Wow. So actually, you know, I had a lot of energy and a lot of commitment. And so um, it was a career I loved. And I never thought that at any point I would do something else. You know, that really wasn't occurring Mm -hmm. to me. And how was, you know, I'm just imagining you at 21 dealing with these kinds of people. How did you differentiate yourself at work and go home and not bring those kind of I'm I'm imagining quite stressful stories Mm. how did you not bring them home and let that take over your life because you seem like such a happy cheery person (laughs) I can't imagine that you've lived a life where you've seen all these things I think the the fact that I am um my my personality is quite buoyant Mm. um, means that I could go to those dark places okay and somehow drive away or leave it because when I was at home I was with people who I loved who loved me who supported me so I had a very strong foundation which meant that there were terrible cases and there were terrible times and actually working in that prison was hell was really difficult Mm -hmm. and there is no doubt that psychologically I was affected and I was not always leaving it at the gate Um, but the fact that I had the support at home meant that I could bounce back the next day Um, and as for not letting things get in your head or leaving them at work. I don't think I did that. You okay, know, you carry them with you. I think you I in did carry them with me, and I think that's why there is an obsessiveness to me that is has been really useful for the writing, mm-hmm. because you're you're living with a case for however many years it takes you to write the novel, and you know I can do that. I can 
I can revisit and go over stuff again and again. And as a probation officer, you know what this person has done. And you're mm-hmm. going over that case again and again and again. It's not like you've heard it and then you say, well, I know what you've done. You're all the time pulling at threads, opening it up, breaking it. If we look at it this way, if we look at it a different way, um, challenging, pushing. So um, so there is a kind of obsessiveness to, to, the, to the world of the probation officer that really mm-hmm. translated to the world of the author. Yeah, I can imagine it's very useful. I mean, for me, I find it so scary to to see what to mm. see what people yes. are capable of. Um, and is the first book the only one that's based on a true story, or which other ones are? Well, they're all based on true stories. Okay. Um, I mean, as I say, I I worked for two years with children who've killed. And Humber Boy B mm. is about a ten-year-old boy who throws another boy off the Humber Bridge. Um, so it's not, you know, it's inspired by, by the boys I met, by the cases I worked. The woman before me is about a woman who stalks her husband's ex-wife and is accused of killing the ex-wife's baby. And I, I, worked, I worked with stalkers. I worked with people who were obsessed with their partner's exes. I mean, mm. that's actually quite a common form of stalking. So they're insp- all inspired by real cases. The Sacrificial Man is inspired by the case of Armin Maiwes in Germany. Mm. Um, it's a it's a case of a cannibal killing, um, mm. though it, it's presented as a love story, and and Nowhere Girl, um, which is your latest book, yes, yeah. and is about kidnappings in Luxembourg. The trigger point for that was dropping the kids off at school and seeing a poster saying, "Make sure you accompany your children at all times," mm. and then me finding there'd been three attempted kidnappings in Luxembourg in the sort of preceding few weeks. Right. So they're all inspired by reality. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what drives me, really, real cases. And then fictionalising them so that I can explore them in a in a deeper way. Yeah. It's quite... I mean, you've been doing this since 2002, mm. but it's quite topical, actually. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the series, which is called... Mm. Serial, yes, of course. Um, and then the the latest one that I was watching was uh, making, making of a murderer. murderer. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> and it's you know I feel like it's a bit of a not a craze, but it's become it's trending now. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, all these kind of thrillers that are based on real life and, you know, digging up cases that have been unsolved or allegedly solved, but not, you know, rightly, not rightly convicted. And you've been doing that before it was even topical. Mm. And now that it is, do you find it easier to explain to people about your book? Because I can imagine back in 2002, 2000, mm. between 2002, 2005, it was d- a difficult concept for people. Mm. Or how did you find it then? Yeah, it definitely was a difficult Mm. concept for people. Um, It took me five years to get The Woman Before Me published. Mm. Five years of rejections that were all saying, people won't read this. It's too dark. It's too bleak. People need something that's feel good. They need the ends tied up. And then you look at something like Serial or Making of a Murderer, where the ends are absolutely not tied up. And um, we're we're all the time unsure about what the truth is. Um, But yeah, people... Uh, certainly the British publishing industry did not get, continue to not get what I'm trying to do. Um, and it is still a struggle um, because there's always that choice of trying to compromise mm-hmm. and neaten things up to get a bigger publishing deal, but actually not being true to yourself by doing that. And I'm, 
I'm always kind of there, you know, thinking why why can they not take a, a punt with this? Mm-hmm. But um, they're they're very conservative. Has it improved? I don't think so. I think okay. it's it's run by the same kind of people. Yeah. Um, everybody you meet in publishing is rich, white, uh, very posh, private school educated. You yeah. know, and actually, what that means is their view of what is worthy to be read is it's very tainted. narrow. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's very similar yeah. stuff. And so then I'm sat in meetings with these publishers and they're saying, um, but are you sure, Ruth, that somebody could get a gun in Ipswich? And I'm saying, <laughs> you know, I've, I've worked with people who've got so guns So I know, in yeah. And they don't, you know, they don't really get it. Okay. And I think that's that's been a, a struggle. And, you know, I don't think that's exclusive to books. I think that's probably the same in, um, in a lot of other artistic industries. Mm-hmm. Is that why you were able to... So you published your first book by yourself? So I won that competition and got right. a print run. And then from there on, how did you get your other books published? Was that difficult or...? Hugely. So after five years of rejections with the woman before me, mm. it had won a major award at the Debut Dagger. And I'd, you know, I'd been told, you are going to be the next Jodie Pico. This book is sensational. It was the out-and-out winner. And then nobody wanted to publish it. And eventually, I gave up on my agent. I sacked her. Um, and then I started to submit it to smaller publishers small indie presses mm-hmm. you know literally three people in a room and i won another competition and this time the prize was a print a publishing deal it was the luke bitmead award okay and that the prize of that was a publishing deal with legend press so i won that thank goodness thank goodness for that award because i don't think without it I would have been published. So these competitions do work because I know people that have people who would probably listen to this podcast for inspiration from you Mm. who have seen competitions like that. And I've written to them and said, oh, you should really apply for that. And they've gone, nah, I'm not good enough or, you know, no, nothing good comes of it afterwards. Oh, competitions are the key. I mean, mm. it's how I got my... I've had, I've had several agents, but mm. it, agents will contact you if they like it. Um, it's how I've got published. You know, every break I've had is because of a competition. Thus far, it's not because of an agent selling my work. It's because of okay. a competition I've entered. I'm a huge fan of competitions, and I'm often a judge now on competitions. And I always, and you know, there are mentorship programs. I've had yeah. two years of mentorship that yeah. I, I won. You know, these things are wonderful. They are the key to success, I think. And, you know, yeah, it's, of course it's hard work. It's like mm-hmm. doing an MA for a whole year yeah. with no guarantees of anything at the end. But um, that's what it takes. So you qualified as a probation officer in 1996. Um, what advice would you give people who are interested in joining the service? Like, you know, how do you know that you're really st- strong enough or tough enough to go through that kind of career? Or do you just go it, go for it and then you figure it out? Um, I think my experience um, is that actually if people are applying, they're mm. usually the right people. Because it is a job, you know, they're re- it's really difficult to get in probation. There are, mm-hmm. there are no jobs. Yeah. There's no training programme particularly. It's, it's really tough to get on any kind of vacancy. It's badly paid. Nobody values these jobs. You know, it's the Cinderella service. Nobody knows about probation. So actually, if you get to the point where you're being interviewed for a training post, then you're there because you really want to work with criminals and you're driven 
by it's a vocation you're driven by that mm -hmm. and the people that I worked with you know that's what it was about understanding the criminal mind there is no other benefit to the job mm -hmm. um, it's quite a good pension that's about it you know yeah. it's, <laughs> it, re it really is it really is um, that you would only do it um, if you were really committed to it. So if you're thinking of doing it and you're applying for it, then you pretty much are cut out for it. Well, because because why would you even consider it if not? I mean, you know you're going to be in a room with a criminal mm. hour after hour every day. Um, and you know that you're going to have to do this this rigorous training course, you know, and mm -hmm. um, put yourself through that. So, and you know, it's, it's actually, it's kind of a peculiar career to pick. Yeah. You know, most people haven't even really heard of that job you know they would have come across it because they know somebody i mean in america they're they're armed and they're much more correctional officers right a probation officer is historically they're social workers mm -hmm. so they're more interested in the um supporting the, the welfare of the criminal yeah know. i mean it is still a punishment but fundamentally you want these people to get jobs to get work to um to find places to live mm -hmm. to avoid crime you you want them to live a good life that's kind of the driving force so there is a punitive element to it but at the end of the day you get to know these people really well where does it come from that kind of sympathy for them and you just you, you know you, you mentioned that you want them to find a job and you want them to do well later mm. how do you bring yourself to want that for them when you know what they've done yeah I mean I think I don't know how to answer that because for me it was something that was I was always very interested in oddness in deviance mm -hmm. you know even at primary school <clears throat> I was attracted to friendships with people who were isolated or loners or mm -hmm. having problems at home you know i i've just always had that uh, desire to understand and to fix people a fixer yeah. yeah and i don't know where that comes from but it's it's just there and i think that um the people i know who are probation officers they wouldn't necessarily know where it comes from mm -hmm. they just know that when they found that career it kind of worked and they do tend to be the same type of people i mean probation officers tend to be politically left of centre, you know, they, yeah. um, they believe in um, that society has created a lot of the problems that these mm -hmm. people have. Um, they, they tend to also be quite difficult people, you know, willing to argue for the underdog. You know, by nature, that's going to make you a bit of a tricky character. You know, mm -hmm. team meetings were always very, um, you know, very tense. There was a lot of shouting. and Not your average staff meeting in an office no, then. No, <laughs> you know, they're not, so, they're not so polite, you know, because yeah. they're working with people who you can't be polite with. Yeah. And they're also, the other thing with probation officers, they're always very blunt because they're not shockable. They've heard it. Mm. And um, so they're not suddenly going to be all um, nice and... Um, you know, polite, really. There's, there's a certain... I mean, they're very difficult to work with. They're very sort of union-based. You know, if you're trying to manage them, mm. they, can, they can be tricky characters. But that's what you need. Because yeah. these are the people who are going to be going in the benefit office arguing that this criminal deserves um, this certain grant or they're going to be arguing with the boss, you know, I think you should give this person a chance. Or they're going to be arguing with the magistrates. Yeah. Don't send them to prison. Let them have a probation order. We can change them. So they're quite strong characters and they're certainly not driven by material stuff and have you ever met uh, don't know if you want to answer this but have you ever met a criminal who you think is unforgivable and you just couldn't even bring yourself to be kind to them yes okay i have, I have. we are human after all oh absolutely <laughs> and 
and you have to you have to be very honest about how you feel about mm-hmm. that. Um, I think what's worse is if you're working with somebody and you start to think, I think this person's innocent. Because actually, if that happens, get rid of the case. You know, transfer it. Because you can't do any good if you think there's, that person's innocent or that, or that the victim was lying. You can't, you, you can't then do your job. So actually, to, to dislike the person, I think you could, that's, that's workable. What's That's, harder is when they're innocent or when you think that when you th- When you start to doubt the conviction or think they've had a rough deal because then you're kind of on their side, you're seeing the world their way and mm-hmm. seeing the world their way is not going to help them change their behaviour. You mm-hmm. need to see the world a different way. But I think, um, yeah, I've sat with people who I've thought were d- disgusting but as long as they don't know that, you know, as long as they don't <laughs> yeah. sense it, then um, you can work through it. And actually sometimes it's okay for them to know that. I worked with one paedophile and um you know he knew that i was revolted by him yeah and we talked about that and i and he said you know you want you want me to bang my chest every day i see you yeah. and say mia culpa and i said yes i do yes i do because it's not ending for your victims why mm-hmm. should it end for you so in a way if you're disgusted by somebody or frightened of them use that you know as a probation officer you don't ignore that you think if i'm frightened then I'm going to listen to that. You're dangerous. And do you ever get frightened when you leave your job? You know, at the end of the day, do you feel like, oh my God, there's all these other people Mm. out there with the same mindset as these people that haven't been caught yet? What about those people? Um, I think the advantage is that you feel you know it. You you know where these people are. You know, I think, again, the biggest risk is the people who say, oh, I live in a really safe neighbourhood and, uh, you know, Luxembourg's really safe and nothing happens here. For me, that's the danger because mm. actually, you know, I'm, I'm under no illusions about the fact that there will be people committing crime in any area and, um, and so I, I, I live my life that way. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I have a certain degree of caution and uh, awareness. So I think, um, I think that's okay to, to see the world you know, in, a, in that kind of proactive way. And have you, do you think that you instill more of that into your children than other people would? Yes, I do. Um, I've had it said to me by friends, you know, that I've kind of ruined their innocence by talking to them about the way the world can be. Mm. And I think innocence is overrated, you know, because um, actually they... They know that um, there are certain behaviours that will be risky. Yeah. For example, you know, my daughter goes into the town shopping on her own, mm-hmm. but she knows she shouldn't use a public toilet. You know, um, that the, she knows that there are certain areas you do not go. Those are high-risk areas. And, the, and, and why? And why those would be high-risk areas. And I would far rather than that than she was walking around feeling invincible and invulnerable because none of us are. Do you think that we as the public um, don't know enough about how to keep ourselves safe? And because I've been to people's houses before where they don't even lock their front doors. I will, Mm. you know, I will know certain friends that I can just go there and open the door because they will always have their front door unlocked. So things like that. Do you think that we are too unaware? I think certainly here Mm. in Luxembourg, because something you hear constantly is, well, Luxembourg's very safe. Yeah. Luxembourg's really safe. Oh, really? And actually, uh, you then dig a little bit. You know, I mean, uh, and I'm from a really small town in Suffolk. And, yeah. I, and we, had a, a, we have an unsolved murder from that town. 15 minutes away, we have another murder that's unsolved. You know, and I knew where the, 
where the criminals were in my town. And this was a tiny town. This is a city. This yeah. is a city with um, roots to other parts of Europe. And the idea that Luxembourg is in some way less susceptible to the risks of other cities, other towns, is, isn't true. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it just isn't true. I mean, I've been here two years and I've been, um, I've been the victim of a crime twice. There should be... I don't know if it should be from the government or somewhere. There should be some guidelines that remind people of... For some people, it's common sense. But there are some things that I think that I need to know more about of how to keep myself safe. You know, Mm. really, it might be simple to you. Mm. But to us laymen, we need... We kind of need those kind of guidelines more, I think. Oh, and practising. I mean, actually, the thing is, most people who are victims, uh, they freeze. They, They absolutely always freeze. And if you know, and and the only way to avoid freezing is to practice, to actually practice yeah. a response. So that if somebody does, uh, you know, as happened in Cologne, if somebody gropes you, most people freeze. You know, and then the public say, "Well, how is it that we didn't know that this was happening on the train or on the on the subway?" It's because people freeze, and they and so it happens, and nobody knows. And actually, to unfreeze takes practice. You need to unlearn um, what's actually a defensive mechanism. But I think people would feel less complacent if things were were reported properly. And I know um, journalists in this city who say they don't know about the crimes until they get the end of your report. Mm. And, you know... No. Just to go back to writing, because that was initially why I invited you on, but I've become <laughs> so fascinated by what you, what you did as a career that I just got distracted. For those of the listeners who are listening to this and they want to get into writing and they want to know how it's possible, hmm. apart from through competitions, what advice do you have for writing? Do you sit down and write every single day or do you write only when you have inspiration? What are your kind of writer's tips? Okay, well, if you write only when you have inspiration, you're never going to finish a novel. <laughs> um, writing, writing a novel is like running a marathon. Mm-hmm. So if you've decided you're going to run a marathon, you go out running every day. Yeah. And you would run if it was raining, if it was cold, if it was your birthday, yeah. if you weren't feeling too great. You'd still run because you need to, you need to run a certain amount every day to eventually run that marathon. And writing is like that. Um, So you actually need to practice. Mm -hmm. And the only way to practice is to have a notebook with you and to be writing. And um, I would say writing every day is a really, really good discipline because it it doesn't have to be much, but just, and it doesn't have to be good, Mm -hmm. but it's that practice. And there's there's a wonderful adage that to be good at anything, you have to put in um, 10,000 hours. Wow. And actually... This is, this is totally true. It might even be 100,000 hours. It's a lot of hours. Anyway, <laughs> to be good at anything, you have to put in lots and lots of hours. You know, you have, to, you have to... You couldn't do anything without practice. But how do you balance that as a mother and a wife? How do you put in however many hours? So that's prioritising. So you have to switch the TV off mm-hmm. or, you know... Um, you just have to say, this is important to my, to, this is something I want to do, it's important to my life, so I'm going to carve out this time. And, you know, for me, um, things slipped, of course they did. You know, when I was, when I was writing my first novels, and, you know, back at work, um, they would, the kids would come home and, you know, there would be very little in the cupboards because I wouldn't have done a shop that day. Yeah. You know, but actually, they're not going to starve, and, you know, we've got pasta and sauce and that'll do. So, Mm -hmm. you know, and the same with like putting in a load of washing. It's things like that that I let slip because I thought this is more important. And those things can wait. 
and things can wait. There's always something that you can you can do, you know, or you decide not to go to the gym or you know, not to not to go out with a friend for a drink. You know, mm-hmm. the, if you really want to do, and this is not just writing, this is anything. If yeah. you really want to do it, you've got to put in the time, learning yeah. an instrument, you know, becoming an artist. You can't just um, think it's going to come. And things like NaNoWriMo, mm. you know, the month in November yeah. where people write a novel. And after that month, I always get quite a few emails saying, I've finished my novel, what do I do now? And actually, the answer is, you have finished a early draft and that's great and that's wonderful and you've got an idea that's fantastic but actually you can't have written a novel after a month you have to go back and revise it and work on it and edit it and and you know it takes years yeah i mean every book takes years you, you get to a certain point where writers can be producing a book a year mm-hmm. but that's going to be when they've done their however many thousand words already they've done their apprenticeship yeah so um you know it's it's not, there's no writer, there's no writer for whom it's just happened that easily. You know, Jack Kerouac may have written On the Road in a weekend, as is said apocryphally. But, you know, he was writing for years before that. You know, he was actually working it in his head. There's practice and, yeah. Yeah, so um, it's not a quick fix, um, writing. Certainly not a novel. You know, it's, it's a long haul. Right, and now let's talk numbers because people always want to know how much um, you make as a writer and what it's really like. Because as we mentioned earlier, there is a perception that as soon as you have your book published, you're set and you get paid royalties. And once you see your book, you know, in your hands, you're done and mm. you can sit back and the money comes rolling in. Yes. What's, the, what's your experience ah, for that? Well, so, okay, so you have your book published, which is wonderful, and there it is in your hand. Nobody is going to buy your book because they don't know who you are and they'd rather buy um, the latest J.K. Rowling or, you know, the, the next in the Twilight series or a book that they've heard of. So actually what happens is if you want to make a success of it, you have to go out there to bookshops and do signings, mm-hmm. which you imagine is you're sat at a desk with a queue of people. Of course that's not the reality because they don't know they you, don't know yet, you. Yeah. and nobody's going to queue to, to buy a book from somebody they don't know. So you have to go up to people and say, you don't know me, and uh, but you might be interested in my book. Will you please have a look? And you might be interested in buying it. And um, I would do this every single Saturday with the woman before me. Every Saturday, I was at a Waterstones somewhere. I've driven there on my own expense. I've rocked up at a Waterstones. There's a pile of books. There's nobody in sight. Yeah. And if they are, they're, they're looking at, you know, the latest ones on the shelves, the bestsellers. They're certainly not looking at my book. <laughs> and I approach every single person who enters the store. And if I'm lucky... On a good day, and that's a whole day, I would have sold 40 books. Yeah. And from that, those 40 books per book, I'm getting, I don't know, no, certainly no more than a pound. But by the time other people have taken their money, it could be like 20p. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the money side of it, it cannot be your motivation. And you're going to have spent that anyway on your petrol or your lunch. But I did it. I did it every Saturday. And then I said, um, any book club that read my book, I'll come and talk for free. And yeah. I still do that. I've got two book clubs next week in Luxembourg. Okay. So um, you rock up for free. And again, I could be driving miles. You know, mm. I went, I drove like four hours to talk to four people once. And, um, you know, I've had awful experiences. I went to one book club and only one person had read the book and she didn't like it. You know, the rest, <laughs> of, them, the rest of them 
hadn't even read the book. You know, it, it's, but I'll do it. Um, yeah. And so, okay, you do all this, and eventually people start to buy it, and they tell other people. It get, picks up momentum after yes. a while, but it requires you to work really, really hard at really it. Really hard. And it's that energy for every book, for yeah. every book, because you are competing with books that have, you know, that people really do know the author. And, I mean, I'm now five books down, and, you know, it's still um, that push is, is absolutely required. I mean, it's easier now with Twitter and Facebook, yeah. bloggers, you know, but I never say no to anything. You know, I mean, I, the day I move back to England, the following night I'm talking to a WI. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll, I'll still have stuff in boxes. And <laughs> I'll do, yeah. but, you know. The work doesn't stop when you've written the book. The work begins. The writing the book is the easy bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the enjoyable bit. That's the lovely bit. Getting a publishing deal or an agent is uh, is is incredibly tough. Yeah. Still, you know, I have I have books that are rejected. You know, it's not like every book I've written yeah. has, has received a publication deal. Although it may seem like that because you're on your fifth book already, but actually, there's a lot of work that goes into it that doesn't get published. Yes. Yes. And the, the reworks, years, years of reworks. And um, now it's everything's easy with social media and there's self-publishing, of course. Mm. What are your opinions on self-publishing? I mean, I do believe that for an unknown writer, self-publishing is the only way mm-hmm. because it is so hard to get a publishing deal conventionally. You've got to get an agent first um, because the publishers won't look at you if you haven't. And then there's no guarantees. You know, you're, you're competing with thousands and thousands of people. So actually, self-publishing is a really good way to get your book out there, to test the market, to get mm-hmm. a readership, and also to test your uh, motivation. Um, so I'm really glad I self-published first. Um, and then w- I was able to use all of those skills with the other books. So I think self-publishing is a great starting point Mm -hmm. and for some people it's the only way they want to go they don't want to go through all the rejections and the you know the um, acquisitions meetings because they're really difficult and really painful and you have no control Mm -hmm. you know whereas if you're self-publishing you choose the cover you choose the edit decisions and um, you promote it yeah so self-publishing is wonderful but of course it means there's a lot of crap out there because anybody can do it. Yeah. There is no gatekeeping. So some books will will do really well and there'll be a bit of a buzz and those writers will go on to get agents and get publishing deals. Um, and a lot of them, you know, they won't, but that's okay too. Yeah. Because if you want to see a book in print and that's your only goal um, and to give it to friends and family, well, why not? Yeah. So I, I am a fan. But I think the hearing from what you said earlier, if I was a budding writer, I'd be looking out for those competitions too. I think, yes, yeah. as you mentioned, that was a great way to get your foot in the door and to get noticed as well. Yeah, and they're not, you know, it's not one or the other. Yeah. You enter the competitions for the mentoring scheme and you can self-publish. Mm-hmm. Because at any point, you can take that book down from Amazon and publish it commercially yeah. with, a, with a publishing house. You know, the... The Luke Bitmead um, competition that I mentioned, one of the w- winners, um, I was the judge one year, and the winner we picked had already self-published her book. It was already on Amazon. Which showed initiative, actually. It did, and, you know, she all that happened was she removed it from self-publishing and gave it to Legend Press. Who and there was no it. issue. Exactly, no yeah. issue. Okay, so there's two questions that we always ask um, on mm. this podcast. <laughs> and the first one is, what would you tell your 18-year-old self? Uh, Okay, 
yeah, 18, tricky age. I wouldn't be 18 again for a million pounds. Um, so back at 18, I'd just started university. And as I've said, I, I was from a uh, quite a rough school and not very aspirational. And so to be at Warwick, I felt I didn't belong. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think I was good enough. And I was always thinking I'd be found out. And I think if I could say to my 18-year-old self you deserve this or you're good enough Aww. just something to to stop the anxiety and I say that even though I know that that anxiety lasts way beyond being 18 but um I would have I would have liked to have um just believed that I was I was okay to be there yeah that would be nice okay and then we'd like to play a song um in your honor so what song would you choose as the soundtrack to your life and okay. why well, this is a song that I um, I used to listen to at about that age, and it's Suzanne Vega, um, and it's called Left of Centre. Um, and so the song is about being an outsider, which I think is something that that I've always felt I, I am. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really useful thing for any kind of creative pursuit to be an outsider because it makes you a watcher. Um, and so I th the lyrics are that um, if you want me, you can find me left of centre. Mm -hmm. And um, I've always been a bit left of centre, certainly politically, but also in my life, I've always been slightly on the edge of things. And I think that um, that's not a bad place to be. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for coming in today, Ruth. Thank you. And your latest book is out now. Yep. And people can buy it on Amazon? Or? Of course. All my books are on Amazon. Nowhere Girl is the book that's set in Luxembourg. And, um, yeah, people can um, find it on Amazon or ch in Chapter One or in Ernster. And they can also find me online if you have a book club and you want to invite me along. I'd be happy to do so. And your website is? RuthDugdall.com. Okay, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. So that's it for this week's How I Got Here podcast. Thank you so much for downloading it. Please don't forget to give us a rating on iTunes because that is how we keep these podcasts free. And I'm going to leave you with the song that Ruth chose as the soundtrack to her life. And it is Suzanne Vega's Left of Centre. And obviously for rights reasons, we can't play the whole song, but here's a part of it. Thank you so much for tuning in. Off of the strip In the outskirts And in the fringes 